0: Lord God, we do thank you so much for the church, this incredible thing that you made that's so much more than just a service that happens on Sunday morning. It's it's a family. It's encouragement. It's prayer. It's reminder of spiritual things, eternal things. It's a place to serve and a place to be served. It's a place to belong. Um, God, we thank you for that. And we thank you that in participating in the church, we grow and we are edified. And we thank you that in participating in the church, we are humbled and we are blessed. And we thank you that through our participation in the church, you are glorified and your name is magnified. And I pray this morning that as we look at your word, you would accomplish those very things in us and through us. Um, Father, I thank you so much for the friends that I have in this room and Just the love that we share for you and and the way that we can come together and sing songs and rejoice about your love for us. Um, So Lord, would you bless this time and would you be blessed as we seek to make your name great. Amen. So I haven't preached in uh, three weeks, which we planted Maricopa Springs 12-ish years ago. And I don't think in 12 years of planting Maricopa Springs, I've ever gone three weeks without preaching. So hopefully I can remember how to do this. Um, But open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 38. And if you don't have a Bible, then on this little welcome table back here, we would love to give you one of our Bibles. You can pick one of those up. We would love for you to take that and keep it. Let it be a gift from us to you. Or if you want to pull up a Bible on your app. Um, But about a year ago, we began our teaching through the book of Genesis at Maricopa Springs Family Church. Most of the time, we just pick a book of the Bible and we slowly make our way through it. And so we picked Genesis about a year ago. But from time to time, we do some detours. And so over the last couple of months, we took a little detour to spend some time thinking about our church's mission and our core values that define who we are as a church and why we're here. And then last week, Gabe took us uh, back to Genesis and walked us through Genesis chapter 37. And so today we're going to continue making our way through Genesis by looking at Genesis chapter 38. And Gabe did a good job last week, right at the beginning of his message, if you were paying attention, pointing out that the book of Genesis is broken down, into different sections by this little phrase that in English we translate, these are the generations of, and then fill in the name. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Abraham. These are the generations of Jacob. In Hebrew, that's the word toledot. And so Genesis is kind of structured around these toledotes, these generations of the different people that are talked about in the book. And uh, last week he pointed out Genesis chapter 37 verse 2 that has the final one of these little indicators that the scene is kind of changing. Genesis thirty-seven chapter 37 verse 2 says these are the generations of Jacob. And so that verse is cuing us into that we are transitioning into the life of the sons of Jacob, particularly Joseph. But before we get into chapter 38, I want to remind you of just a few other big picture things as we get back to the book of Genesis. Okay, Genesis is a book of beginnings. That's what Genesis means. It tells us about God, who has no beginning, created all things at the beginning of time and history, just by the power of his word. Genesis tells us about the origin of man. And man's fall into sin, which helps us understand why the world is such a screwed up, messed up, ridiculous place. Genesis tells us also about the beginning of God's plan to take man in his sin and bring him into redemption and restoration. Genesis sets in motion the beginning of God's plot to redeem humanity out of sin and restore the relationship that's been broken between God and man. Genesis tells us about the origins of the Jewish people through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it also is going to put uh, put in place for us the pieces at the end of Genesis where the Jewish people, God's chosen people, the sons and daughters of Abraham, find themselves in slavery in the nation of Egypt. Egypt. And then out of that, we're going to get the story of the Exodus, where God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. And that's really where we're going to begin to step back into the story here in Genesis 37 and now today, Genesis 38, okay? Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named uh, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons that would become the nation of Israel And one of those sons is going to be kind of the key figure at the end of Genesis. His name is Joseph. And as the chapter ended last week in chapter 37, we saw Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt. And so now Genesis is going to follow the story of Joseph as he goes from being a slave in Potiphar's house to being a prisoner in Egypt and ultimately to basically being almost the king of Egypt. But before we can get there, as the story of Joseph begins to take off in chapter 37, suddenly uh, we find chapter 38, which is just a weird tangent that goes in a totally different direction. We we leave Joseph in Israel and the camera pans and we're back in the land of Canaan and we're looking at another son of Jacob named Judah. And... Judah is, in this scene, going to engage in some rather unsavory behavior. And what I hope to do today as we look at this chapter is help you understand why in the world chapter 38 of Genesis is even here in the Bible, in the place that it's at, okay? And right now you might be like, I don't even know what's in Genesis 38. That's fine. Let's uh, get there. And, uh, and hopefully I will be able to prove to you today that there is a reason why this is here and why it's important. Okay, so let's pick up in Genesis chapter 38 and I'm going to start with verses 1 through 11. It says, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shela, my son grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Well, it couldn't, shouldn't come as any surprise to you as we've made our way through Genesis that there are some uh, you know, unsavory parts of this story. Uh, Genesis is pretty uh, straightforward when it comes to some of this stuff. But chapter 37 ended with us following um, Joseph down into Egypt. And again, now the scene shifts back to Canaan. Canaan is the land that will one day be Israel. So if you were to flip to the back of your Bible and you were to look at a Bible map there, Canaan is essentially the land of Israel before the Israelites had conquered it and made it their promised land. And we focus in on Judah. Judah is one of Joseph's older brothers. Judah is actually the fourth born son of Jacob. And Judah is a descendant of Abraham and Isaac, but he's not a very good descendant of Abraham and Isaac. If you've been with us as we've gone through Genesis, maybe you remember that Abraham didn't want his son Isaac to marry a Canaanite woman. He wanted him to find a woman from his homeland. And Isaac had that same ambition for his son Jacob. But we're told here in verse 2, that Judah does something that Abraham and Isaac would have frowned on. He marries a Canaanite woman. And unfortunately, she's so unimportant to the story that we don't even get her name. We just know that she's the daughter of Shua. But this woman bears Judah three sons in total, Ur and Onan and Shelah. And when Ur comes of age, a Judah chooses for him a wife and he chooses a woman of the land of Canaan, a Canaanite named Tamar. And I'm guessing that Ur and Tamar were not married long because they don't get pregnant, they don't have any children. And at some point after their marriage, verse 7 very frankly tells us, God thought that Ur was wicked and God put him to death. Now we're not told exactly what his sin was, Maybe that's because the text doesn't want to add notoriety to that particular sin. I'm not entirely sure. But whatever the reason was, it must have been very offensive to God. And the reason is because Ur is the first individual in the Bible who we are told specifically God puts him to death for his wickedness. Now remember Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, God wiped out that entire city But if you remember that uh, moment, God enters into this negotiation with Abraham and Abraham kind of talks God down and says, God, if there's a handful of righteous people in the city, will you spare the city for the sake of the righteous? And God says, yes. But in this case, Ur is so corrupt in his own behavior that God as an individual strikes him down. As a result, then Tamar is left childless and she's a widow. And that causes Judah to invoke what is called the Leveret Custom. Okay, Uh, We kind of learned about it in the text, but I'll give you a little bit more details here. The Leveret Custom is an ancient custom that would eventually actually become law in the nation of Israel when Israel established its nation uh, after the Exodus. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10 Kind of gives the details of the Leverett custom. But it goes something like this. If a man dies and he's married and he leaves his wife without any children, then it is the obligation of that man's brother to marry the widow or at least uh, go into her, sleep with her, impregnate her so that the dead brother's family name would carry on. And any son that was produced this way would by law be the child of the deceased brother, okay? And this was to protect the family legacy. It's also a way to provide for the widow so that she doesn't become destitute as she ages. The son would grow up and he would take care of her. And that was a way that in the ancient world, women would be provided for and cared for. Now, obviously, to us, this sounds like a weird social custom. We are, like, so far removed from this that you probably read this and you're like, that's weird. Um, but this was how things worked in the ancient world. And actually, it was an important custom in the ancient world because it brought stability to the social fabric. It helped maintain uh, families and keep, keep people out of pro- poverty, okay, And so Judah says to Onan, his second born son, Onan, it's your responsibility. Go into your brother's wife Tamar so that she can have children who belong to your dead brother Ur. And Onan, I think, at least on the surface, appears to be happy to oblige his father's request. But the text tells us in verse 9, that Onan was only happy to oblige his father's request so far as it would lead to his own sexual gratification. We're told two important things in verse 9. First, that Onan understood that if he impregnated Tamar, the child that she bore would not belong to him. It would be the son of Ur. Uh, Yeah. And second, we're told that on multiple occasions... Onan went into Tamar because the text says whenever he went in to have sex with her, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to impregnate her. And the reason is because Onan understands the consequences of Tamar having a child. Which would be that Onan's family line that now stands to inherit a bigger portion of the family inheritance because there's no competition from his older brother would get bumped out and would now inherit less from the family. And so Onan is happy to go into Tamar to sexually gratify himself at her expense, but he's unwilling to give to her offspring that could be raised to help provide for her because that will diminish his own inheritance. Now, we're not told what Ur did that offended God, that caused God to kill him, but we are told what Onan did that offended God. Isn't that interesting? Not only was his selfishness an offense to God for the way that it mistreated Tamar, but I think it's pretty clear that God is displeased with Onan because he refuses to accept any responsibility for caring for his deceased brother and his brother's family. And so God puts Onan to death as well. And again, I think it's significant that we're not told what angered God about Ur, but we are told what angered God about Onan. And it highlights the fact that God is upset at Onan because Onan refuses to love his brother. That's really what is going on here. And I'm reminded of Cain and Abel. Again, do you remember that story as we made our way through Genesis? After Cain kills Abel... God comes to Cain and says to him, Cain, where is your brother? And do you remember Cain's response? His response is quite snarky and rude. He has the audacity to say to God, his maker, am I my brother's keeper? It's none of my business. I don't know where he is. I don't care. He's not my responsibility. A cold-hearted and cruel response particularly when Cain knows exactly where his brother is because he left his dead, cold body there. And here is Onan, not guilty of taking a life, but the inverse. Onan is guilty of being unwilling to give life. But it's the same kind of wickedness, isn't it? Lack of love for his brother and his brother's family. In his heart, he was motivated by selfishness, and his selfishness drove him to mistreat Tamar and also defame the deceased memory of his brother. And so God takes from Onan what Onan was unwilling to give to to, to Tamar, which is life. Onan is judged by God for his sin, and the penalty is death. For the wages of sin is death, Scripture teaches now, tragically, Onan's death leaves Tamar widowed yet again and still childless. But Judah has one more son, and so hope remains that maybe in this third son, Shelah, there will be an opportunity for Tamar to have some kids and to raise them. But Judah, watching two of his sons die, is unwilling to offer his third son to this woman for her benefit. He doesn't want to risk the same kind of outcome. Verse 11, I think, is maybe a little bit hard to decipher at that ending part there. But instead of giving Tamar his youngest son, Shelah, Judah sends Tamar back to the house of her father with this kind of promise that uh, one day when his third son is old enough, they'll be united. And it kind of seems like What's going on in the mind of Judah is this woman is the cause of the death of two of my sons and I'm not willing to risk a third one. She's got some kind of voodoo curse upon her and if I send Sheila to her, I know what will happen. And I can't help but wonder if it's kind of a typical blind spot of parents that we're witnessing here. Right? Sort of unwilling to admit that maybe his sons are the problem. He's going to cast blame on the in-law instead. He couldn't see that his own sons were wicked. Not my kids. No way. And so instead, he superstitiously believes that this cursed woman is the reason why his sons keep dying. In any case, he does give Tamar this pledge that when Shayla is old enough, when he's of age... The two will be wed or united so that she can have offspring. Now, the text does not expressly tell us this either, but I feel quite confident in saying that Judah had no intention of following through on this promise. Why do I think that? Because verse 11 informs us that his real motivation here is not the age of Shelah, it's his concern that Shelah will die. Judah does not care about Tamar's predicament. He cares only about securing his own family line through his one remaining son. And so as we see then, the text tells us in verse 12 that quite a bit of time passes. Certainly enough time for Shelah to grow up, to be old enough to sire children, and Judah makes no effort to follow through on his promise. Okay, so let's read Verses twelve through nineteen. It says, In the course of time the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hera the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance. To Enem, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, "Come, let me come in to you," for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, "What will you give me that you may come in to me?" And he answered, "I will send you a young goat from the flock." And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Now look, this whole scene is quite weird. weird. Um, There's a few of these in Genesis, as we've already experienced. But it comes about as the result of Judah's unwillingness to really care for his daughter-in-law. And I actually believe Judah's failure was deliberate. I think that Judah did not want to give his son to this woman. But it is possible that it's mere forgetfulness. Either way... What Judah's lack of care for Tamar shows is that he's no better than his sons. He's unwilling to do for, or at least he's, yeah, I mean, he's no better than Ur who was killed for his wickedness and Onan who was killed for his lack of care. In a different way, Judah is guilty of the same sin as at least Onan because Onan refused to give to Tamar what she deserved because of what it would cost him the inheritance. And now Judah has failed to give to to Tamar children through his third son because of what he thinks it might cost him. Judah has failed in his obligation to this woman. Now look, I'm going to do something here that um, I was explicitly told in seminary many times not to do. But what do they know? I'm just kidding. But I do try and avoid this uh, as much as possible. But I'm going to engage in some allegory. Because I think that there is something here. I think it's appropriate. And um, hang with me because this is going to get weird for a minute. And then hopefully it will make sense. See, the Hebrew word for semen is actually the word zera. And it means seed. It's actually the same in Greek. The word is sperma, and it means seed. It's where we get our English word for sperm, which is the seed in sexual intercourse that connects with the egg that produces life. And Onan wastes that seed, and Judah then withholds that seed, and that leaves Tamar destitute a widow with no children. And see, the church has been given a mandate to spread the seed of the gospel so that heaven's throne room might be filled with people from every tribe and tongue and nation, children of God, singing praise to the glory of Jesus Christ who has redeemed a people for himself by his blood. And I think it's worth asking us as Christians, as members of the church, are we guilty, like Onan and Judah, of neglecting our obligation? Do you see where I'm going with this? When God created mankind, He gave them a mandate, He said, Go and be fruitful. He created sexual intercourse before the fall as a means by which the earth would be populated with people. Onan and Judah failed to permit Tamar to participate in that mandate. They kept her from having children. And when Jesus created the church... After his resurrection, passing on his authority to the disciples, do you know what he said? He gave them a similar kind of mandate to the creation mandate. At the beginning of his new creation, he said to them, after rising from the dead, for this last period of human history, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Disciples of all nations. Spread this gospel seed and let children be born into the kingdom of God. And so are we as Christians guilty then of withholding that blessing from others by failing to engage in the work of evangelism, sharing the gospel, spreading the good news, making the invitation, letting the glory of Christ be known in his plan for salvation and redemption? We have been commanded by Jesus to spread the gospel seed, to make disciples, to bring many sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. Do we waste that seed by failing in that command? Are we spiritual onens holding back the gospel from the world? And if you'll grant me that there's some correlation here, then I would be so bold as to say that when the church hoards the seed of the gospel and only gathers together like we do on Sunday to talk about how great it is without ever taking it out there to share it with the lost people who need it, then we displease God actually in the very same way that Onan displeased God. By not doing what he has told us to do. Just as semen brings physical life in the context of marriage, the gospel brings spiritual life to a lost and dying world. And if we waste that gospel seed, then I believe that grieves the heart of Jesus. And I hope what I'm trying to say makes sense. But we'll move on. (laughs) Maybe you're relieved because you're like, I'm done with that illustration. That's okay. As for Judah, I think that he would have neglected Tamar indefinitely, except that she takes matters into her own hands. And so she takes advantage of a few kind of timely things uh, to ensnare Judah. Judah's wife has passed away. That, I think, probably leaves him sexually unfulfilled. And the timing of this event happens around this period in the calendar where there is a sheep shearing which typically would come with a festival that often had to do with uh, an abundance of crops and included in that would be some pagan rites and rituals that had to do with um, uh, fertility of crops. Often connected with that would be a kind of ritual prostitution that would encourage... um, Uh, more crops to grow. And so I think Judah gets kind of ensnared in that. And I think Tamar is pretty crafty in her timing. She sits by the side of the road and she manages to catch Judah's eye. And I don't know exactly if this is what her plan was, but she rolls with it. He assumes she's a prostitute. She does not disagree with his assumption And with a bold assertiveness, Judah quickly negotiates a price for her. He doesn't feel, think think about this. Think about what kind of man this is, right? I mean, we don't know exactly how long his wife has been dead, but the text seems to say he's only just completed a time of mourning, and he feels no scruples about paying a whore for her services only shortly after his wife has died. I mean, this is not a top-notch quality guy here. And Tamar clearly knows the potential danger she is in that this engagement will bring to her later. So she demands from him a pledge. She's less concerned about the price. He can name the price, but she wants to name the pledge. His signet, his cord, and his staff. In modern terms, this would be something like leaving her with his driver's license and a utility bill. Okay, some clear identification. These are items of very small objective value. She couldn't take them to the local marketplace and sell them for the price of a goat. That's not even what she cares about. These are personal items that will identify him. And Judah gladly agrees of it. He doesn't, agrees to this. He doesn't think anything about it. I think he's probably just caught up in like, you know, the, the bloodlust of lust, the stupidity of lust. And the result is that Tamar becomes pregnant by her father-in-law, Judah. That's scandalous. I mean, the Bible has some stories in it that will, like, outdo the best raunchy soap operas. This is an ethically messy scene. And we would probably be tempted to condemn Tamar for her actions here. But I want to point out that Tamar's actions are not born out of lust. They're not born out of greed. This is a woman who's doing this out of need. Probably also a combination of betrayal, disloyalty. She's, she's the victim of mistreatment by this family that she married into. Now, I'm not suggesting that that makes her actions praiseworthy or even acceptable. I'm just saying that it does make her actions at least Understandable. Right? We can understand why a person in the position that she's in might do something like this. She does not bear the same guilt as Judah who has selfishly neglected the promise that he made to this woman and who has failed to provide for a member of his family by marriage and who is also uh, willing to carelessly engage a common street prostitute. So let's see how the rest of this plays out. Verse thirty-eight or verse 20. And man, the Bible is just so good at storytelling. I I was mentioning that to our adult Sunday school. Like, this is just good storytelling, isn't it? Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Edulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, "Ah, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. So Judah sends his friend to get his stuff back, but the prostitute is nowhere to be found. Judah gets played for a fool, and his own immorality then is going to come back to bite him in the end. And I think that we can assume that Judah is not so much concerned, actually, about making sure that a prostitute gets paid. What's he really in it for? He wants his stuff back, right? He has no qualms about not making good on the promise he made to his daughter-in-law. This is not a man who cares about paying his debts. This is a man who doesn't want his personal identification out in the cloud for everybody to see, held by a prostitute. But when the woman's nowhere to be found, Judah doesn't want the added embarrassment of scouring the countryside, knocking on doors, being like, Hey, have you seen a prostitute around here somewhere? She's got some of my stuff. And so, instead he gives up the search, but he, he nudges his friend, the Adulamite, and he says in verse 23, you, you see, you, you can testify, like I'm a good guy, right? I tried to track her down and pay her. Like, if she resurfaces with my stuff, claiming that I'm, you know, a schmuck, you can be my witness that I gave it my best effort. We already know, though, that Judah is not a man who pays his debts because he never followed through on the pledge he made to Tamar. Anyway, eventually it becomes apparent that Tamar is pregnant, and when Judah finds out, he is incensed by her immorality. Now, the hypocrisy in verse 24 is obvious, but it's actually more intense than you might on the surface notice. See, when Judah told Tamar that she would be married to his youngest son, Shayla, or at least when Shayla came of age, he would be provided to her to produce offspring. Really, what happened there was at least a verbal engagement. They are, in essence, married culturally. This was a kind of contract. Which means that Tamar has not merely slept around and got pregnant as a widow. She is technically a betrothed adulteress. A much greater sin. And because she has now offended the honor of the family to whom she is betrothed, she's brought disgrace upon her future husband, Shelah, and on Judah, according to that relationship father and son, Judah, as the patriarch of the family, is now obligated to assign to this woman a punishment that will restore the honor of his family. But here's why his punishment is so horribly hypocritical. Because who actually violated the contract? Judah. Judah never cared to provide Shelah as a husband to Tamar. And now that she's pregnant, he's somehow offended at the outcome because of her sexual promiscuity. Judah has withheld honor from Tamar. But now that Tamar seems to have done something that is dishonorable, Judah is upset about it? How is that right or just or virtuous? Actually, I think Judah has probably forgot about Tamar altogether. I think he's put her out of sight, out of mind. But now, suddenly, she's pregnant. And he's got an opportunity to dispose quietly of this thorn in his side. Who's going to take his third son. That makes him look virtuous. Because she looks scandalous. Here's a way for him to be rid of this cursed woman and released from his debt. And then, of course, his hypocrisy is revealed. When she sends to him the signet, the cord, and the staff, and says, yes, it's true, I'm pregnant, and the man to whom these items belong is the one who is the father. Now, there's some application for us here that I hope is obvious. That you, I think, hear me talk about fairly frequently at Maricopa Springs. Some application related to hypocrisy. To our offended sensibilities when it comes to sin. See, the fact of the matter is, if we are honest about sin, the sins that we commit really aren't that offensive, are they? Certainly not as offensive as the sins that other people commit. We're just like Judah. We are quick to condemn the things that other people do that are sin, even while we make all kinds of excuses and rationality, rationalization for the sins that we do. That's why Jesus himself said, why do you notice that little sliver that's in your brother's eye when you've got that big plank sticking out of your own eye? You hypocrite. Before you can do eye surgery, you better take that log out of your own eye so you can see more clearly. Jesus knew what was in the heart of men, people. He knew how easy it was for us to be deeply attuned to the offensive sins of other people that are around us, even as we make all kinds of justification for those very same sins in our own lives. And fortunately for Judah, when his hypocrisy is revealed, he doesn't do what so many people do. Oh, but she's still pregnant. What a whore. How dare she? Oh, but look at these other things I've done where I'm such a good guy. Oh, well, look at this guy over here and the way he's greedy. He doesn't redirect or excuse or justify. He says, man, she's actually a decent lady. She's more righteous than me. He actually has the humility to admit that he's wrong. And so I would pray that Judah can be a lesson for us. That we would learn from this story to be slow to show condemnation to others. And very quick to repent of our own sin. That we would humble ourselves before Jesus so that he can further purify us and lift us up. So let's bring this to a close. Let me finish with verses 27 to 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zara. All right, so Tamar ends up pregnant with twins, and once again we see God's sovereign will at work here in Genesis because while technically Zara is the first one to be present outside of the womb in some way, instead Perez ends up being born first, and Perez is the one who will carry on The family line, the blessing of Abraham that's come from Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, to now Perez. So here's why this chapter in Genesis is important. Two major reasons. First, Judah in this story acts as a foil to Joseph in the following chapters. A foil is a literary term and it means a contrast. Judah is a piece of crud. He falls for all the tricks. He ends up kind of decent at the end, but he doesn't start out well. Whereas Joseph, when he's tempted, when things are rough for him, he does everything right. And so Judah is going to act as kind of a a highlight to the righteousness of Joseph so that we can see how excellent Joseph is in the Genesis story in the next few chapters. But second, and more importantly, this chapter is essential in your Bible because it gives us a critical piece to the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. See, you might expect that because Joseph becomes the key character at the end of Genesis, that the blessing of Abraham would pass to Joseph. That it's the children of Joseph who draw the line from Abraham to Jesus, the Messiah. But actually, Jesus comes from this pregnancy between Judah and Tamar. How crazy is that? I think that that is crazy. Go read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. The New Testament begins with Matthew chapter 1, and it begins with the genealogy of Jesus, and it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and it specifically mentions Judah, and it even names Tamar, a Canaanite woman who became pregnant through pretending to be a prostitute and became pregnant by her father in law. That is scandalous, my friends. It's not at all what we might expect. But that is the way that God works. Contrary to our expectations. Like our scripture reading said, he uses the wisdom of the wise to just reveal that they're foolish. And he uses the foolishness of man to show his wisdom. He tears down the strong and he raises up the humble. God chooses to work through the sinful actions of people in order to bring about his good purposes. Does that mean that we should go do sin? No. It just encourages us that when we fall along the way, God is still at work in mighty ways. God does not do the things that we would expect. He makes use of unsavory characters like you, like me, to accomplish His plans, to sow the gospel, to build His kingdom, to encourage the weary, to strengthen marriages to bless humanity. He uses people like you and me, unsavory, unworthy characters. God is in the process of taking the rubble of sin and repurposing it all, recycling it all in order to build his kingdom for his glory. He's actually in the process of making important people out of scandalous people like you and me. One day we will judge angels, is what scripture says. That's under God that is the highest position of authority you can have in all of creation. That's what God's going to do with you in spite of the scandalous nature of your sin. And so for you and I, still in the thick of all of this, still tempted by sin, still tossed around by the waves of doubt and hardship and struggle and difficulty and failure, biblical stories like Judah and Tamar, they remind us that God is powerful to bring about his good purposes in his people for his glory from the messes that we make. Our God is good and he's mighty and all of his plans prevail. And he's assured us of his love for us so that even when things don't look good, we can be certain that all will turn out well in the end. His purposes will stand. Let's pray. God, as ridiculous and scandalous as this story is, we thank you for the hope that it gives us. That even people like us can play a part in the story of your glory. We thank you that from sinners like Judah and Tamar, you raised up your own son. Perfect God. In the flesh. Born scandalously of a virgin. That he might teach about the kingdom of God and shed his blood for sinners like us that we would be redeemed. Redeemed. By simply placing our trust in him. And God, I pray that you would teach us to trust you. That no matter how big our failures might be, no matter how small our successes might be, no matter how much discouragement or temptation we might face, that we would trust you that you are working all of these things according to your plan for your glory and for our good. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.